Father, we thank you for this time to look at your words. Please would you open our eyes, help us to see what it means. Help us to understand who Jesus is, to see him more clearly, so that we can follow him and live for him, not just as individuals, but as your church. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, they say Christianity is dying out. Secularism is on the rise. There will be no churches in 50 years' time. The Church of England is in terminal decline. Christian faith is a hangover from a non-scientific, irrational age, but soon it will be consigned to history. These, are, I guess, are the kinds of statements we're, we're getting used to hearing in various quarters, the kind of assumptions people often make about Christianity and about churches. There was a recent academic study that looked at public perception of the Church of England. Now, what do you imagine non-church members would feel about the national church? Well, it turns out that for many, for the majority who responded, <clears throat> the answer to how you feel about the national church is not very much at all. The report said, very many in our society today have no particular sense or feeling about the church one way or the other. But also, interestingly, of those who do hold a view either way about the church, there are more negative views amongst those who actually attend church themselves than there are among non-churchgoers. It's interesting, isn't it? They tend to be, if they have a view, the non-churchgoers tend to be more positive. But the fact remains, very many more are just apathetic. Now, on top of all that, you sometimes come across the idea that it was when the early Christians invented the church, as it were, that everything started to go wrong. So a Roman Catholic priest from the last century called Alfred Loisy, who was a critic of traditional forms of church, he put it like this. Jesus came proclaiming the kingdom, and what arrived was the church. Can you hear the criticism? So if we could just get back to Jesus' original message and do away with kind of services and rotors and bad coffee, you know, not here obviously, and uh, hierarchies and power struggles and abuse scandals, you know, wouldn't everything be so much better? Well, this morning we get to do that. We get to go back to Jesus' original words and teaching and thoughts and intentions. And it turns out church wasn't something invented by Christians. It isn't completely absent from Jesus' teaching. It isn't a big distraction from what he really came to do. It's right at the heart of his message and his mission. You can see that in verse 18, if you look. I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. So at least when it comes to thinking about church itself, far from the idea of church being alien to what Jesus was concerned with, it is completely central. Now that verse, verse 18, is, key, is the key to this whole paragraph that we heard. And actually, it's the key to the whole section that we've been looking at, chapters 14 to 17, uh, over this term. We've seen in the previous weeks, if you've been with us, Jesus has been building his church. That's what we've been seeing in 
uh, the, the, the readings that we've been hearing. He's been building his church in the face of opposition from outside, from the religious elite and from others, but also he's been building his church in the face of confusion from within, from his own band of followers who are seeking to trust him and follow him, but just sort of don't quite get it, and they find it hard. He is building his church. Now, Matthew divides up his book into sections of action and sections of teaching, and this section of action that we get in 14 to 17 is followed in chapter 18 in a chapter all about the church, as Jesus then teaches about the church. So that is where this is heading And that shows why this verse is so important for unlocking and understanding everything else around it. So let's now see that as we see what it means here for Jesus to to say he will build his church. If you've got the notice sheet, you can see that the headings on the back. Here's the first thing we need to see. Jesus will build his church. It's a church built on Peter. Church built on Peter. Now, If you go to St. Peter's in Rome, as uh, we did just pre-pandemic a couple of years ago, that in the back, you can't really see it here, but in the background, behind our cheery faces, is St. Peter's in Rome. And uh, if you go there, you will find this verse, verse uh, 18, uh, you will find that inscribed in Latin uh, on the dome. Okay? All very impressive. But if church is at the heart of what Jesus is concerned about, what does it then mean to say that this church is built on Peter? So is this about popes? Is it about apostolic succession? Is it about the primacy of the Roman Catholic Church? Or is it something slightly different? Let's dig into what it's saying here. Now, Jesus is a brilliant asker of questions. Have you ever noticed this? He's a brilliant asker asker you know so often when we want to share our faith with people what do we do we try and wade in with answers we try and wade in with declarations about what we what 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 we believe and what people need to understand but it's striking when you look at Jesus and how he is with people it's not that he's he does he does say things but he so often begins with a question not an answer but a question and sometimes when he gets asked questions he comes back with another question He keeps asking questions. Now, why does he do that? It's because so often, if you try and give an answer before someone's ready to hear it, well, it's the end of the conversation. Nothing more to say. But if you ask a question, it opens it up. And immediately you're into conversation. And that's what's going on here. So first, the the question is general to his followers. Who do people say the Son of Man is? The Son of Man means himself. That's how he often refers to himself. Who do people say he is. And the, the initial answer is a little bit kind of vague, a little bit equivocal. Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And the thing is, that is meant in one sense to be a compliment. Can you see that? You know, your, your ministry, Jesus, we can see this, you know, it is like one of these great figures in Israel's history that we revere. And people today do the same kind of thing, actually, with Jesus, don't they? You, you ever notice this? You know, I've got a huge amount of respect for Jesus, your non-Christian friend might say. Huge amount of respect. He's a great moral teacher. You know, I love, to, I love his teachings, they might claim. He's up there with the best of the best. He's up there with Muhammad. He's up there with the Buddha. He's up there with Confucius. He's up there with Mother Teresa. And on it goes. 
Now, it's meant as a compliment. But the question is, is that actually enough? Uh, Rowan Atkinson, who um, played uh, Mr. Bean, was interviewed a, a, few, a while ago, and he talked about how people sometimes half recognise him in public. Must be a very difficult thing when you're a celebrity and people sort of half recognise you. You get that all the time, I imagine. And apparently there was a guy in a Land Rover parts department uh, who was staring at him. And eventually he came over and he said, has anyone ever told you you're the spitting image of that Mr. Bean? And Rowan Atkins said, said, yeah, well, (laughs) that's because I am Mr. Bean. I'm the actor that plays Mr. Bean. To which the guy replied, ha, I bet you wish you were. (laughs) You should do lookalike work, he said. You know, you could do stag nights and hen nights. You'd earn a fortune. Well, can you see? That was intended as a compliment to some guy in a Land Rover parts department just having a chat. But actually, it's falling way short of reality. So Jesus asks again, enough of others. Who do you say I am? And it's hard to think of a more important question anyone could be asked. And Simon Peter goes for it. In the light of everything that they've seen and understood, he goes... You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. This is significant because it's the first time in the Gospel that the disciples have recognised Jesus not just as a great healer with great power, they've certainly seen that and acknowledged that, a person that causes them to praise God, they've done a lot of that, a teacher the like of which they've never heard before, they've been astonished by the things he's been saying. Not just any of those things, but the Messiah, the promised anointed one. That's what that word means. It's the same word as Christ, just Hebrew instead of of Latin and Greek. The one the Old Testament promised. The hopes and dreams of God's people focus here. That is what Peter is saying. And because he's seen that and he's the first one to see that, Jesus says, blessed are you. And we'll think more about what what that means, what he means by that in verse 17 in in, in a bit. But then, now that Peter has identified Jesus, you're the Messiah. Now, if you like, Jesus identifies Peter. You are Peter. And his name, Petros, in the original language, means rock. So there's a play on words. On this rock... I will build my church. So what is going on here? Is he making him Pope? Well, there's nothing here in the text about popes. There's nothing here about the Church of Rome. These seem to be things that the church added in later centuries and then looked around for a verse to justify it. What we have to do as Bible readers and Bible interpreters who want to take the Bible seriously and want to say we want to do what the Bible says rather than what what other people have said We need to try and understand what this means here, what it means in its original context as Matthew gives it to us. So what is it that marks Peter out as special here? Well, there are two things that we can see. One is that he's just declared who Jesus is, that he's the Messiah, and that's after chapters of people not quite getting it. Here is one who does. And the other is what Jesus says next. He says, I will give you the keys of the kingdom. 
Now, what, do our, what happens to our thoughts when we hear that? Immediately, our thoughts go to St. Peter at the pearly gates and all of that kind of stuff that we get in popular imagination and medieval art and so on. Again, though, that seems to be reading into the text something that isn't here. Apart from what else, anything else, when Jesus talks about the kingdom of heaven, which he does a lot, and the kingdom of God in the other gospels, same thing, he isn't just talking about something future, something after death or, or, or whatever. He's talking about a present reality that he's come to bring that starts now and, yes, lasts through death, lasts beyond his second coming into eternity, but it isn't just something sort of in the future after death. It is something that begins now. That is what the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, is about. The reign of God has begun on earth. So the keys to the kingdom aren't about life after death. They're about here and now, extending into eternity. And again, thinking of what we actually know about Peter in the Bible rather than from traditional popular imagination, what kind of keys to the kingdom does Peter appear to have later in the New Testament? It's slightly hard to be 100% certain because Matthew doesn't spell it out, but if you look later in the book of Acts to see, you know, what kind of role does Peter have? You know, can we see him with the keys? Well, think about it. If you know anything of the book of Acts, and don't worry if you don't, but he has a kind of one-off role that involves, in particular, the admission of not just Jewish believers in Jesus, but Gentile believers in Jesus into the kingdom of God. And to begin with, those following Jesus are Jewish believers, and the Holy Spirit comes on then at Pentecost, at the beginning of the book of Acts, and Peter preaches. It's Peter who preaches then, again, with the keys, and many are saved. But then later in the book of Acts, in chapter 10, it's Peter again who receives a vision that makes it clear that membership of God's people should be open to Gentiles, non-Jewish people, on the same terms as Jews. Now that is a massive shift in thinking for God's people, and much of the rest of the New Testament is addressing this uh, issue. And it puts Peter right at the heart of the establishment of the church in the New Testament. So do you see what we're saying here? You know, forget medieval art, tradition, popular ideas. What we know from the Bible is that Peter did indeed turn out to be the key to the foundation of the church, which came about after Jesus had died and risen. So Jesus did build his church, and it started here with Peter. Do you see? And Peter continued with this central role, with the keys to let the Gentiles in. Now we know throughout the gospel, Matthew is very concerned with the inclusion of the Gentiles. We've seen it even in these chapters around this section. So we know this isn't completely foreign to what Matthew is thinking about. He's concerned about how not just those from who were already sort of seen as within God's people, the Jewish people, he's concerned about how the promises to Abraham, way back at the beginning of Genesis, that through God's people all the world will be blessed, how that promise will be fulfilled. Matthew is thinking about that too as he puts this gospel together. And so what makes Peter the foundation then, put all this together, what makes Peter the foundation is that he is the first to declare that Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ. And it is then that same declaration that then builds the church as others after him come to see and believe the same thing. 
And so in Romans chapter 10, later in the New Testament, Paul, the apostle, writes, if you declare with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Do you see? The same declaration is what includes anybody then in the church. So what does that mean for us as a church today? Well, it means that we need to be a church that puts that declaration of who Jesus is at the centre of everything it does. And maybe, just maybe, think about this, maybe the reason our wider society has grown often apathetic, as we were thinking about at the start, often apathetic to church and churches and Christians, and could that be because actually we have stopped showing them that it's the message about Jesus that drives us and makes us distinctive? See, what is the one thing that churches and Christians should be known for? Is that one thing, is it food banks? Is it care for the poor? Is it concern for the environment? Is it social action? None of those things are bad things, let's be clear. But actually they're not the central concern of Jesus as he builds his church. He's not waiting for Peter to do any of those other things. He's waiting for him to understand who he is. And so at the heart of what the church is about needs to be that same understanding. The church that Jesus builds is not ready to be built until its first member has seen clearly who he is. And so it's the same today. You see, sometimes it can seem like churches, and perhaps even we ourselves, are willing to talk about all kinds of good things, all kinds of religious things, positive-looking activity. But here's the thing, and it's not a particularly popular thing to say this. But here's the thing, you see, you will find any number of charities and companies and, and individuals of all faiths and none who will talk about poverty and talk about the environment and talk about climate change and urban regeneration and the problems in our cities and name anything. You will find all kinds of people who are concerned about these things. And it's not that they're not important issues. But only the church is ever going to talk about Jesus. Do you see? But do we? That's the question then, isn't it? Do we talk about Jesus? If we appear to be merging into the background and being forgotten and sidelined as individuals and as a whole church and a whole denomination of churches, is that the reason why? The church Jesus will build is a church built on Peter because Peter saw and declared who Jesus is. And then secondly... The church Jesus will build is a church built by Jesus. It's a church built by Jesus. Do you hear how possessive Jesus' language is as he talks about this? He says, what does he say? He says, I will build my church. This is his church and it's not ours, that means, doesn't it? And the thing to realize is once you've identified that Jesus is the Messiah, the idea of the church built by Jesus the Messiah is not an afterthought it's not another different thing. It's part of the same thought. And the reason that's important to see is that there is this type of thinking that we thought about at the start, which says, well, Jesus is great, but it's the church that's the problem. 
And even beyond that, someone might say, you know, well, I have, you know, I have faith in Jesus, but I just, I just don't see the need to kind of get messy in a church. You know, I can just kind of do Christian faith in my own way, by myself. Church is an optional extra when it suits, when I have the time. But here's the thing to see, you see. What, what does it mean for Jesus to be the Messiah? Messiah means anointed one. The one who's anointed. That's what they're looking forward to and waiting for. And in the Old Testament, there were three types of people who were anointed. Do you know who they were? They were prophets, they were priests, and they were kings. They were all anointed, and then they're waiting for the anointed one. They're waiting for one who would therefore fulfill all of those offices, if you like, for God's people once and for all. They're waiting for this Messiah to be a prophet who would speak to God for the uh, speak for God to the people. They're waiting for a priest to represent the people to God. They're waiting for a king to rule for God over the people. And you see the striking thing about those three roles, prophet, priest, and king coming together in the Messiah, the striking thing is none of those roles makes any sense at all without any people. Could you see that? You need a people if you're going to be a prophet. You need a people if you're going to be a priest. You need a people if you're going to be a king. You can't have that function without the people. It's built into what that role is, in other words. So that's how the logic works. Peter identifies Jesus as the Messiah, and so Jesus identifies Peter as the foundation stone of the people the Messiah has come to rule over and to reveal God to and to save. So do you see, the church is not some kind of human made-up response to what God is doing. It is what God is doing. Creating a people for his Messiah. And we can then see Jesus doing that work of building this church that belongs to him throughout these verses. There's more to see here. So we see it as he points out that even Peter's recognizing Jesus is not a fluke. It's not an accident. It's because it's been revealed by God. Can you see that in verse 17? Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. Jesus is taking the initiative. He's building his church. See, it might look to Peter like he worked it out by himself, but in fact, it's a gift from God. And it's the same for us. People sometimes get in a bit of a flap about this. You know, how can both be true at once? If God's in charge of my decisions, then surely that makes me a robot. It's a common sort of objection people have. But the Bible talks completely happily and openly about both being true. That we come to our own decision to follow Jesus, you know, we need to do that. We need to come to that decision. We need to look at the evidence. We need to see who he is. We need to come to trust in him like Peter did. And if we're not, if we haven't done that yet as individuals, I'd encourage us to keep doing that. Keep looking. Keep looking to see who he is. And yet at the same time, that is God's work in us. And so when we do then see, actually that is a miracle that God has revealed that to us. He gets the credit. And it's the same thought of Jesus doing the building here, as it were, in those slightly curious verses, words about binding and loosening. Now, if you look down at the bottom, there's a little footnote. It says, whatever you bind on earth, if you want to translate it a little bit more literally, what it says is, whatever you bind on earth will have been bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth will have been loosed 
in heaven. So not just will be, but will have been. Now, you know, it's a bit clunky to put things like that, so you can see why they've smoothed it over a bit. But there's a subtle distinction here. Because again, almost certainly referring to Peter's unique role with the keys of letting the Gentiles into the people of God, as he does that, it will become clear, Jesus is saying, that he's only doing what's already been done in heaven. What you loose on earth will have been loosed in heaven. In other words, it is God's plan. And Peter is being promised God's guidance to do what God has already decided. Now, we kind of go, oh, I don't get that. You know, how does that work? Is it me or is it God? Well, the Bible just says over and over again in so many different ways, this is how it works. God is God. He can do what he likes. We won't always understand that. That's okay. We did understand it. There might be a problem because he's God and we're not. But he, he, he is very much driving this even as we look for his guidance and seek to fall in line with it. Now, the implications of all this are massive. You see, how easily do we talk about churches as if they're our church in a possessive or controlling sense? You know, whether you're a church leader or a church member. Now, I know we might say, you know, this is my church in, a, in the sense of this is where I belong. Of course we do. That's, that, that, that's fine. But actually, it's not my church or your church in the sense that I or anyone else has authority over it to kind of do what I like with it. Do you see? This is Jesus' church. There's a reason that later in the New Testament, actually in the letter that Peter writes, his first letter, leaders are described as under-shepherds because there's a chief shepherd. So any kind of system that sets up human beings on earth as having some kind of, you know, in, in, any, in any small context or a bigger context, of any kind of supreme authority that can't be challenged, no, that can't be right. Jesus is in charge. It's his church. Leaders, members need to fall in line with his authority. And that's why we want to listen to what he's saying to us in his word in the bible that's why we take the bible so seriously because it's his church and this is how he speaks to us and guides us so our job is to work out what jesus is doing get on board and we can do that with great confidence because thirdly and finally and briefly the church is built to grow unstoppably Built to grow unstoppably. Verse 18, the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Now, I think sometimes we hear that as a promise, uh, as being something about how the forces of opposition are going to kind of crowd in on on Jesus' church, but they're not going to win. Which is true, but think about the picture that Jesus is using. It's actually a little bit more positive than that, because when was the last time you saw gates move? Gates aren't things that move, are they? They're things that stand still and that kind of open and close. They stay in one place. So rather than the idea of the church having to kind of bed down and protect itself from the forces of evil, which might overrun it at any point if we're not careful, actually, this is more the other way round. Can you see this? 
So as the church grows and expands, it is going to come to the gates of Hades, as it were, which stands for the forces of the devil opposing God. It's going to come to those gates, but do you know what? What's Jesus saying? Those gates are not going to be able to withstand the growth of this church that he is building. The early church needed to hear that as they faced the persecution to come at the hands, whether it was their early Jewish persecutors or later their Roman persecutors and Nero and all of that. The church today needs to hear this too. Because think of those prophecies of doom that we began with. You know, the church is dying, it's all terrible, look at the numbers. Well, the thing to remember is it really depends where you look. There may well be a significant amount of pruning that needs to take place, particularly in a nation in, 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 in the West, in, in churches where we've lost sight of the fact that it's all about Jesus. There may well be people leaving in their, num- in their droves from such places because they're not hearing about Jesus. And there are plenty of other people, as we thought about before, that will give any number of messages you want about all the other things you sometimes hear the church talking about. So there may well be some pruning that needs to happen in this country and and other places that we're familiar with. But outside the West in particular, if you go and look, you find, what do you find? You find the church is growing and growing fast. One of the most remarkable stories is the story of the church in Iran. Now, you wouldn't expect this. But, do you know, Iran has the fastest growing church movement in the world. you believe that? The fastest growing church movement in the world in Iran, of all places. It's gone from five to 10,000 people just 20 years ago to between 800,000 and a million today. And those are all converts from a Muslim background in Iran. But do you know what's even more significant to understand about that, that, that remarkable statistic that makes Iran the fastest growing church in the world? What's even more significant is Open Doors, who we support, who supports the persecuted church worldwide, they report, they put Iran at number eight on the list of countries with the most persecution. So can you see what's going on there? You see, people aren't coming to faith in Iran because it's an easy choice. This is a great sort of lifestyle thing to do, to add to, to, to their lives. Now, if you become a Christian in Iran, your life is going to get extremely difficult. You are going to be persecuted. The countries above them on that list are places like North Korea. Okay? And there's a lot of countries in the world. Number eight on that list. They're not coming to faith in that country because it's an easy choice. The very opposite is a case but they're doing so in huge numbers. Can you see? The gates of Hades will not overcome it. And it's because people, what is it that would make a church grow in a context like that? It would only be because they have really understood that if you've got Jesus, you've got everything you need. They can take your life and your property and your livelihoods, but they can't take Jesus from you. That's what they've understood. And maybe as we reflect on ourselves in this country, maybe we need to understand the church will, may well get very small 
may well feel very sidelined before it starts to grow again. But it will grow. And it will spread. Because that is what Jesus has promised. As we close then, we have that puzzling verse 20 that the reading finishes with. It's an extraordinary thing, isn't it? You get the end of all this really positive stuff about how the church is going to build, and you think, oh, what's he going to say then? He's going to go and say, tell, tell the world. Jesus ordered his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. What is that about? Well, the answer is that the, the answer really comes in next week's passage. So you're going to need to come back and <laughs> see that. But the basic point is they've kind of got who Jesus the Messiah is. And they've seen that for the first time, and it is remarkable, and it is the foundation of everything they need to understand. But actually, at this point, they have not yet understood what that means for him to be the Messiah. And that will come. Jesus needs to die. Jesus needs to rise from the dead. And then finally the gospel will end. And do you know what happens at the end of Matthew's gospel? We get the Great Commission. Go. But what hasn't happened here right now is that Jesus has not died and risen from the dead and the disciples have not understood that that is central to what he's come to do. So we know what our job is then, don't we? We know that we need to understand who Jesus is and what he's come to do. But then when we understand that, we need to go and tell the world. Don't go till you've understood that, is the point. But meanwhile, know that as we do that, Jesus will build his church. So let's get on board with that. Let's keep that message about him central to everything we're doing. As we think about the church, as we think about wanting to grow as a church and all those kinds of things, there's all kinds of activities we could do. We want to keep Jesus and the message about Jesus at the heart of what we're about as a church. Because when it comes to Hampstead, when it comes to North London, when it comes to the UK and the rest of the world, no one else is going to share this message about Jesus. It's down to us. So let's get on board, let's keep the message about him central, and let's then trust him to build his church. Amen.